This podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, one of the world's largest manufacturers of solar inverters. With 850 employees and offices in 16 countries, the company has sold 7 gigawatts of inverters for arrays of every size, from the smallest homes to the largest solar farms. To find out more, visit keiko-newenergy.com. For the week of February 12th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. In this episode, the moral case for fossil fuels. Are those who demonize oil, gas, and coal missing the broader picture about their benefit? Alex Epstein, the author of a new book on the subject, joins us to argue his case. Then, a major California utility is looking to make an unprecedented investment in EV chargers. Is it a needed boost for the state's zero-emission car goals or an unnecessary ratepayer expense? Finally, we'll get some takeaways from this week's ARPA-E Energy Innovation Summit. I'm Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey in Washington, as always, here to guide the discussion. And my co-hosts are here, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is in D.C. with me. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions. How are you, Catherine? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Stephen. So... I couldn't help but do some research after you said you spotted Michael J. Fox running around in that DeLorean, and it turns out that it uh, was not actually Michael J. Fox. What uh, alerted me was I realized that he has pretty severe Parkinson's, so he wouldn't actually be driving a car, I don't think. Yeah, I'm afraid I need to go back to the eye store and get some new glasses, but it was still cool to see the car driving down the street. Well, in fairness, a lot of people did think it was him because it was an impersonator. And uh, it was sponsored by the Americans for Tax Reform and Digital Liberty to promote an overhaul to the Telecommunications Act of 1996. So, you know, no matter what goes on in the city, there's something politically oriented. Uh, Jigger's in San Francisco this week. He is a clean tech investor and president of Generate Capital. Uh, how are you this week, sir? Doing well. It's uh, nice to be in, uh, in uh, pleasant weather when it's uh, frigid cold in New York City. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we have uh, two dueling authors on the show today. Jigger is, of course, the author of Creating Climate Wealth, which outlines how to make clean tech a powerful economic engine and force for entrepreneurship. And our guest argues a similar case, but for fossil fuels. Alex Epstein is the founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of a new book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Epstein made a name for himself in the energy world in 2012, when he debated the well-known environmentalist Bill McKibben at Duke University on this exact topic, he's since uh, expanded his writing on the topic quite a bit, and uh, he's also become known for showing up at uh, conferences and gatherings of environmentalists wearing his I Love Fossil Fuels t-shirt. Alex, welcome to the show. Are you, uh, by any chance, wearing that t-shirt now? Uh, well, thanks for having me. No, I'm wearing a vintage Hound of the Baskervilles shirt. <laughs> I'm a big Sherlock fan. Oh, cool. I don't really need to wear it all the time when I'm the only one seeing myself. But, uh, <laughs> That's right. Do you like that new Sherlock series? That would be an understatement. I think it's I think it's the, the best TV show I've ever seen, leaving aside Seinfeld. And I think that uh, the first episode of the second season, A Scandal in Belgravia, is uh, I think that was the best movie that year, not just the best show. Ah, something we're going to wow. agree on. That's awesome. <laughs> Good to start there. <laughs> Indeed. Well, you do a lot of uh, sleuthing yourself in the book, and there's a lot in there that I want to uh, get to. So your basic argument is that people who are anti-fossil fuels ignore the benefits 
of oil, of oil, coal, and gas while playing up the harm. What are some of the indicators that you outline that you believe show there's a net benefit to fossil fuels? Yeah, I mean, say my, my core argument is really that, that we need to be very clear on the method by which we're evaluating fossil fuels or, or any other technology. It's, not, it's just that my evaluation of fossil fuels happens to be different enough from other people's that it's worth uh, writing a book. Um, but sort of one of the indicators that something is wrong is that you see that when people talk about fossil fuels, they don't talk much about the fact that this industry, you know, the fossil fuel industry, has accomplished something that nobody else has. Now, we can talk about whether they can potentially, you know, speculatively whether they can. Other things have there been unfair things. But factually, they have provided a certain caliber of energy to billions of people around the world such that 87% of the time a human being uses energy to power a machine, they use this. And so that's one thing, the relative benefit that I think is very understated. And then another thing that's understated is simply the overall benefit of energy. We, you know, tend, you know, normal people, I think, just are taught to think of it in terms of, uh, you know, what happens, what, what's my power bill, what, what does gas cost at the pump? But in the book, I tie the availability of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy to things like having clean water and perhaps most controversially protecting yourself from climate to the point that as fossil fuel use increases, uh, climate-related deaths dramatically decrease. So those are a couple of indications. Yeah, so let's talk about the climate piece just quickly to, to set it up. And I don't want to get bogged down in, in a debate about climate science, but... Um... I think it's important for people to have a frame of reference on where you're coming from. So you do believe that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels contributes to a warming planet. But you say you're skeptical about the rate of warming, and you believe that humans will, as you said, use fossil fuels to adapt. Unpack that a little bit more for me. Sure. And I think just, just going back to the method, if, if we want to figure out what's really going to maximize human well-being. And part of my argument is that many of the leading environmentalists uh, driving this debate actually are not focused on maximizing human well-being. So Bill McKibben, for example, says that his goal is a, quote, humbler world where, quote, human happiness is of secondary importance. And that's, you know, that's definitely not my view as, a, as an unabashed uh, humanist. But so from that, that standard of value with that goal of human life, we have to look very carefully at all the potential benefits and all the potential risks. So Increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, that's certainly something that's important to investigate. But we have to make a strong distinction between what's really known and demonstrated and what's more speculative. And, and I think you summarized it accurately. My view, which I think is confirmed by evidence, is that, that there certainly is a greenhouse effect. It has a warming effect, which everyone agrees is logarithmic in isolation. And then the question is what happens when it's in the complexity of the atmosphere of water vapor and everything else. And most of the predictions and simulations have been this is going to lead to runaway warming, and those have consistently come wrong. And I think that the evidence is overwhelming that that will not happen, you know, let alone the kind of climate catastrophe, let alone the inability to adapt. That's really the whole theory of catastrophic climate change. So it's got runaway warming, catastrophic climate consequences, human inability to adapt. Those are really the three planks, and, and plank one, which is the foundation has no experimental uh, validity. So that's, I don't believe things that have no experimental validity. So I guess, um, you know, my take on this was a little bit different in that, um, you know, I've obviously worked in the oil industry and I also sort of believe that, um, you know, all of the benefits of fossil fuels are real. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, I, I really think your book laid that out very, very well. But I do think when you look at 
the availability of these cheap energy resources, they continue to get cheaper from 1910 all the way to 1999. And that since 1999, we've had a huge spike in commodity prices, whether it was oil or coal or natural gas or um, uranium or, you know, uh, copper and, and whatnot. And I'm, I'm just curious as to, you know, what you think the future holds of, you know, this sort of trend. Yeah. And so, so I think I said earlier that it's, it's really not about fossil fuels. It's about getting the best caliber of energy, uh, to the most people. And, and part of that is that, uh, I am a very strong believer in, in the free market, really in, in laissez-faire. And you know, we can talk about what exactly that means in a context if you're concerned about certain kinds of externalities. Uh, but the view is you want all the best forms of energy to compete. Uh, but so I don't I don't really do predictions in in a certain sense, and I think that most people who do are drastically overestimating what they know. But I think that that the evidence is, is very strong that there's a very, very high probability that this kind of energy, that this technology of turning rocks into energy is going to be vital for many decades to come. And since it's under attack and since the leading proposals are not to liberate more of it, but to restrict 80 plus percent of it over several decades, that's why it's necessary to write a moral case. Otherwise, if, if otherwise I would have no opinion. I'd just say, hey, let's use Let's just use uh, the best. But I think this has been demonized. And then secondarily, I think that are really on the same level that nuclear has been, been demonized. And that's had a hugely destructive effect as well. So the arguments in this book could really be applied to nuclear as well. One of the things, though, in this area, though, I think that we have to acknowledge at this point is that the, you know, the, the, the breadth of fossil fuels and its ability to actually make it to the 1.3 billion people that don't have access to electricity or the the additional 1.3 billion people that don't have access to uh you know sanitation what you find as of last year is that more people are getting access to electricity via solar than grid extensions via coal right and so i mean that's real data that's coming forward that that shows that some of these technologies really do have the the ability to to unlock um you know real human um, progress that fossil fuels hasn't been able to do. Well, so yeah, so I think that that is exactly the type of thing to look at and analyze, right? Because it's it's a real situation, and you see certain people now have certain amounts of energy uh, by having off the grid solar, and and in some cases it looks like well it would be it's better to do this than to have them on the grid. Now my my standard is I don't think the amount of energy they're getting is anywhere near ideal. And I think that you know, the models to follow would be the countries that have industrialized and built grids. I think there's a lot to recommend grids. But I think one, one mistake in this whole debate has been that, that people act as if – and if somebody criticized my book for this because I only mentioned it briefly, I would, I would forgive them for it. I mean I'd say there's something legitimate where industrial is, energy cannot be looked at in isolation independent of a political context and an industrial context. So just to say, oh, coal can produce a lot of energy, therefore it's going to produce a lot of energy for 3 billion people that have next to none of it. No, that's wrong. There has to be, you have to embrace, there has to be industrialization and fundamentally there has to be a political and even cultural change. And I'm an advocate of that. I think that people, sometimes people just talk about the energy piece in isolation and I think that's irresponsible. So if in any case solar makes more sense, particularly as an initial step, uh, People should pursue that. I'm, I think it's important that I'm arguing this in the context not of I hate solar, I think it's useless for different applications, but there is a movement 
to largely abolish the use of fossil fuels on the grounds that it's a planet-destroying addiction. And I think that overall it's a life-enhancing technology. So that's where I'm coming from. So uh, I want to get to just roll back quickly and talk about the climate piece one more. And I know, Catherine, you probably wanted to talk about subsidies really quickly. Um, But there were a few things about those predictions that you talked about. So uh, there were a couple things that I do agree with in a broad sense. Uh, Firstly, I think a lot of people have conveniently ignored how a higher energy planet has helped us avoid the so-called population bomb crisis that was predicted decades ago. And related to that, I think a higher energy planet, however we get that energy, right, will be critical to making people safer from a lot of environmental risks, Um, just energy in general, regardless of the resource. But, you know, when it comes to the climate and your forward projections, I I think there is some uncertainty about projections of warming, although I think that (laughs) from all I've read, over the years, much of that uncertainty really revolves around will it be bad or really bad. And you claim in the book that we shouldn't believe scientists or we should be skeptical because many of them predicted global cooling in like the 60s and 70s. And yes, there were some sensational headlines from news outlets based on a few studies, but researchers have systematically gone through and cataloged papers from the 60s and 70s and show that more than 60% were talking about warming and predicting warming and only around 10% were predicting cooling. So I guess but, but just to be, just to interrupt, I, I did not say, I mean, I, I just want to just interject that I think if people read what I said, I, I worded it very carefully because I think it's absolutely wrong for people to say, oh, you predicted global cooling, therefore global warming. So what I say, though, I was mostly talking about the media, how the media can uh, overpromote things. My primary objection to the catastrophic warming claims is that I don't think there's any evidence. I think there's evidence that the climate models can't predict climate, and beyond that, I don't think there's evidence that warmer is worse. I think that's a modern bias that that goes along with a certain bias toward man-made change. Warming used to be viewed as as very beneficial, and I think there's an argument that it would be. And there's there's so there's uncertainty both ways. There's uncertainty that if we took more CO two out of the atmosphere, you know, relatively speaking, would that harm plant growth? And would warming uh, be better, but so far we're talking about mild changes when dramatic changes have been predicted. So that's that's my argument, not the cooling part. But, but we do have an ends justify the means approach to to fossil fuels, right? I mean, I I fully justify, I fully say that you know modern existence comes from fossil fuels, but but on purpose we've allowed people to have health issues because of fossil fuels. I mean, the National Academy of Sciences in 2009 did a comprehensive study saying that the U.S. healthcare system pays $550 billion a year. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that was the Harvard study. The National Academy of Sciences study said about $200 billion a year in healthcare costs, everything from asthma to premature deaths, et cetera. I mean, even the American Lung Association has weighed in and others. And so, you know, whether it's whether it's oil, you know, consumption in Nigeria, where there are literally gangs of people that are, you know, partially funded by Shell to protect their um, their oil infrastructure, or whether it's um, you know like oil spills and other environmental degradation, there is this sort of ends justify the means. It's like, well, there's a lot of people benefiting from this, and so if a few people have to suffer, it's sort of the way it is, right? No, I think it's I think it's more looking at it as is this what is the nature of this product and technology, and and uh, is is it a fundamentally beneficial thing that can be used in a beneficial way? Anything can be abused, and so a big focus of Chapter Seven of my book is is different ways in which fossil fuels are attacked for abuses of fossil fuels. So that's one category. Another category, though, is certain models or, or people like to call them studies 
but you know, models of this is, I, I think this much damage has been done, or this, you know, coal takes light this many years off life, people in China. And yet you see overall, what well, life expectancy is going up and particularly in the city. So I, I think that in the same way that climate models are abused and treated as certain, uh, th- both those models are used in other studies, which are then treated as certain, and then other models that aren't truly valid, that don't truly show so you don't think uh, causation. That, so you don't think black lung disease is real, or you don't think that the people who live next to coal mines in these areas actually so, have so, lower so, lives? So, so, so I think you want to be careful there, because I wasn't saying anything like that at all. I was. You cited a study that said, what was it, 500, was it $500 billion worth of, so that, that's that's talking about like a catastrophic. No, no, these are real people. Look, I mean. No, 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 hold, 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 on, hold on a second, hold on a second. I mean, if you want to read the National Academy of Sciences, you can do that. Well, there's certainly many things to criticize about the public statements of the National Academy uh, of Sciences, and I discussed some of those dynamics uh, in the book. But something like black lung disease is a perfect example of uh, something where technology has made it occur dramatically less. And and that's in a a context where people are choosing to engage in it. So it's, it's very different than if, say, you were giving black lung disease to everybody by having a coal plant. If you look at a modern coal plant, it's one of the cleanest sources of energy uh, in, yeah, in like, history. There are empirical studies that show that people who live next to coal plants today, not 50 years ago, but today with all of the modern technology, die faster than people who don't. I mean, that's why the coal plants in Chicago were shut down, is that all the people living in South Chicago next to the Edison coal plants were having cancer at 10 times the rate of the people who lived in Chicago, et cetera. I mean, look, I mean, it's fine for you to say that the ends justify the means, but to suggest that these people are not actually dying in in numbers that are large is ridiculous. Um, well, so I think there are, there are many things wrong with what you're saying, but I think what you've done several times is just taken different kinds of examples and, and blended them together when they're very different. And to say there's empirical evidence the question is, is this study really showing causation? Because you can take any area that has, you know, low, that has more people dying and more coal and say, hey, look, there's a correlation. You can also show the opposite. You can show places in North Dakota that have the cleanest air in the country that use coal to power them. So I think you really need to think more carefully. And this is something where my observation in the book is there's not careful enough thinking on these issues there. And there's not enough careful thinking on, you know, the drawbacks of solar and wind, and so I think this signifies there's a kind of cultural bias against the fossil fuel I'm, technology. I'm, I'm, that happy help to, anyone. I'm happy to talk about the ends justify the means with solar and wind with you all day long. I think your statements are carefully crafted for you to like, you know, try to avoid as much criticism as possible. But to suggest that the actual healthcare infrastructure in this country and around the world has been doing sort of, you know, causation studies that weren't done in a scientifically proper manner is is literally ridiculous. I just think that this notion that the supply chain of energy is free from trade-offs. And so if I want to extend my life by five years and take advantage of all sorts of pharmaceutical drugs and other things that I do to benefit from that, there are consequences to people within the supply chain. There are real people who have negative consequences, and that's what environmentalists or you know folks at the American Lung Association or folks other places are fighting for. I mean, their kid that has asthma, who's particularly sensitive to that, yes, gets drugs to do that. But the reason they're particularly you know affected by this is because there are cars driving down their street every day. 
I think, again, you have to think very carefully about this. And it's not true that everywhere asthma just correlates to higher amounts of particulate matter. There's all these difficult threshold issues of knowing, you know, is with anything with particulate matter or dirt, is there a threshold at which it's, it's too low? Is, why are there some places where uh, coal particulate goes down and asthma goes up? These are sort of the very difficult contextual questions that I think are not addressed. What I want to do is think about it carefully. And in a given circumstance, if you can show, look, there's a major harm here, you should identify that harm. And that's something to think about. Now, in some cases, a community could still say, look, there's, yes, there's X increased risk of Y, but it's nothing compared to the positive benefit. And we choose uh, coal. That is a legitimate category of choice to make and to deprive them of that and to say, well, you should use my unproven solar scheme. No, that is detrimental to their lives, to say the least. No, but I'm glad that you finally admitted it. Really, look, I mean, I think this is what the argument's about. It's from your perspective. Wait, what you is know, it? Like, what is it? Look, I mean, there, there are legitimate people who are fighting around the world around human rights and environmental rights. You're basically dismissing them by saying that the fossil fuel industry has provided more benefits than harm. They disagree. No, 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 I'm, I'm, atta- no, I'm attacking them for trying to deprive the world uh, of energy to just say they're, and this goes to the whole point of the book to just say, Oh, they're fighting against these negatives, which I've indicated are often exaggerated uh, or even fabricated. And therefore they're heroes. You're ignoring the fact that there are real people who are poorer because of what they've done. And the same way these same people have opposed all kinds of technologies like DDT, for example, one of the most life-saving technologies ever is opposed by the environmentalist movement. That movement has a continuous track track record of not maximizing human well-being, but trying to minimize human impact on the planet. All right, Alex, suppose everything is equal and people are able to make those decisions, as you suggest, um, based on what they really believe is the right choice to make for them and for their community and for their well-being. Um, If we look at the difference in subsidies that fossil versus renewables has gotten over time, you know, fossil has been very much more supported than renewables. And and what I'm not trying to do here is get into an argument about what those amounts are, but rather to hear from you what your take is generally on subsidies. Do you believe that um, energy sources of any type should get tax credits? Um, if there's some that should that are of higher benefit than others, I just want to kind of get your take on what you think uh, subsidies should look like for energy. Yeah, so I don't think there should be any subsidies at all. I think what what comes up, you mentioned you didn't want to talk about the quantities, but there's issues of, I mean, for instance, the, the the idea that well, the CO2 impact is subsidized. Well, everyone can agree that that idea depends on certain predictions about what the nature of CO2 will do uh, to human beings. So I have I believe the evidence is very different than people who claim there's a huge subsidy. If you claim if you believe that it's going to destroy the entire planet, then you can say, hey. There's a $40 trillion subsidy or a $100 trillion subsidy. So ultimately, these, these go down to what are the things that are being subsidized. But, uh, yeah, but much of, of the, of, many of the subsidies, I'll just jump in there. I mean, many of the subsidies cataloged by uh, the International Energy Agency, for example, are like uh, gasoline consumption subsidies and things that are for consumption of the fuels themselves, not a tax on carbon. So, so, so right. So uh, I'll just say that, that policy-wise – no, there shouldn't be any subsidies for anything. I think this this issue is though often used to obscure the fact that solar and wind have not remotely scaled as the claims have been that they would. And, and a place like Germany, which is considered a leader, has completely failed in terms of actually providing cheap, plentiful, reliable energy 
in a way that would scale. And, and I encourage people to check out chapter two of the book where we have, I think, the most accurate data available and ever really compiled on how exactly Germany is powered and how dependent it is on truly reliable sources of energy. So I believe... But if it's you had be- no negative impact to their economy. I mean, it's like, it's literally you'd like selectively choose whatever facts you want to do, even though Germany has been the industrial engine of Europe and has continued to be the industrial engine of Europe through the last 15 years as they've been pursuing this clean energy revolution. So, so I just want to take it back to what, what, what is the context of talking about the moral case? And so I'd be curious, Jigger, are you for the gradual elimination of fossil fuels to the point of 80% by 2050? Because that's, that's really the context in which uh, I'm operating. And that's the context in which Germany, by investing billions upon billions upon billions of dollars, has n- has not met this claim that solar and wind can replace, let alone produce the additional energy needed. So I'm saying Look, when if I, we follow when I that at, policy, it's a ca- catastrophe. Sure. Look, when I worked at BP, I mean, my mentor, John Brown, was for 80% by 2050. His own data, which has now been proven out by shale oil and everything else, is that the cost of every incremental barrel of oil, the cost of every incremental ton of new coal is actually much more expensive than the alternatives that we have within substitutes and within efficiency measures. And so are you willing to have that as a competition or do you want to make it progressively illegal I based the, on these I am the poster child. I'm the poster child for competition. I'm the one who basically invented the business model innovation that unlocked the solar boom. I mean, to suggest otherwise is crazy. The company I started is a publicly traded company that uses billions of dollars of private sector capital to put solar into India and Chile and other places and compete fairly in the marketplace. My point to you is that like, is that when you think about all of these issues, it is, it is as though you don't actually acknowledge that we live in a complex society of a republic nature. You know, I mean, the reason we have these laws like EPA is not because the environmentalists figured out a way to brainwash everybody in the country. It's because the Cayuga River was on fire, such that the very first Earth Day in 1970 had 10% of the entire U.S. population out on the streets during Earth Day. That's why Richard Nixon was forced to sign the EPA regulation, even though he was promising to veto it. Uh, Okay, so in, in terms of, I think it's very important to have laws that protect people against legitimate environmental harms, which is why I have several chapters that that discuss this in depth. And in terms of do I have a simplistic view of the world? I mean, that's a hard thing. You know, people can take this interview for what they think. And I, I encourage them to check out the book and see if that's a fair characterization. Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks on the left have called you a lot of things. They, you know, some think you're... Not, en- not enough, by the way. I'm really appreciative. <laughs> I don't mind at all, like, you know, being told I'm an idiot as long as I get a chance to be on a show. So I just want to say I appreciate everyone, <laughs> everyone being here. Indeed. No, Alex, I don't think you're an idiot. I think I, I actually loved your book. And so don't get me wrong. I think the case that you make is extraordinary. And I agree with you that fossil fuels has brought about sort of the advent of modern society. I just think that when you look at the incremental costs of incremental new commodities, it is so expensive. Shale oil is a hundred bucks a barrel. So is tar sands. So is Arctic. So is deep sea drilling. It is much cheaper to get our cars to use less fuel than to exploit those resources. And so I just want to be free to have people discover that. And I don't think freedom includes having uh, taxes based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate and a, a very primitive understanding of how we adapt to climate, which I, I'm not attributing to you, but I am attributing to most of the discussion on this issue. 
Alex Epstein is the founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and uh, author of the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Alex, we really appreciate you coming on the show and chatting through some of these things with us. All right. Thanks, everyone. Moralcaseforfossilfuels.com, by the way. All right. Before we move on to the second segment, I want to tell you a little bit about our podcast sponsor, Keiko New Energy. Keiko's got a new product out there for all you solar folks. It's a next-generation single-phase inverter for residential and small commercial projects called the TL1. The TL1 series comes in four different sizes and in six feature packages, so you can get exactly the right inverter for your project. The TL1 has dual MPPT channels to maximize energy harvest when facing shading or orientation challenges. It uses advanced lightweight materials and improved power density to decrease your installation time, which allows for simpler handling procedures and reduced equipment that has to be installed near the inverter. If you want to go check out some specs or talk to someone at Keiko about it, go on over to keiko-newenergy.com. If California is going to meet its goal of getting 1 million electric cars on the road by 2020, it will need to build a lot more charging infrastructure. And there's a debate arising on who exactly should do it and who should pay for it. This week, Pacific Gas and Electric announced plans to build 25,000 charging stations across its territory over the next five years at a cost of about $655 million. EV advocates support the goal, but they don't agree on how to pay for it. PG&E wants ratepayers to pay for it, arguing that the project would support statewide goals that benefit all Californians, but charging companies worry that utility control would stifle innovation, and ratepayer advocates worry that only a small number of people would benefit. The total cost would be about 70 cents per month on the average residential bill. Jigger, what do you make of the debate here? Sort of similar to what we're seeing in uh, solar deployment, residential solar deployment. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, like, why would you charge every single ratepayer 70 cents so that you can get another power grab around, you know, more stuff to rate base? The private sector can absolutely put in these charging stations if PGE would get out of the way. If there's certain neighborhoods where the private sector won't sort of support EV stations, they could rate base EV stations in certain neighborhoods. But to suggest that they should actually do 25,000 across the entire uh, infrastructure, when we already have standards, so it's not like interoperability is a problem or some of these other issues, I just think this is another thing that these utility companies keep wanting to add to their rate base that could be done much more efficiently through the private sector. Wait, I don't see the developers rolling out infrastructure in this way. So there's sure a scale issue that the utility can address. Why? Well, there. I mean, this is unprecedented. This, this. Yeah, yeah, but um, but the the difference I see is that PG&E has a really different model from SoCalEd. So SoCalEd says, look, we'll install the lines and we'll interconnect you, and then all of these charging station folks can come and install the charging stations and own them, and you know, then it creates more of a market. They've already they've set up the grid piece of it, whereas PG&E wants to own everything and do their own subcontracts. So that's like two totally different business models, and it seems like the one for SoCalEd actually allows for a lot more competition. And you've argued, Sorry. Jigger, that, that, that EV charging and EV promotion in general is the most important thing for utilities to survive the DG transition and sell more electricity. And you're saying that well, the utilities shouldn't do this. What, in your opinion, is the best way for them to roll this out then? Well, let me check with Catherine first on this. So like mm -hmm. on the Southern California Edison thing, you're saying that they're rate-basing the connection costs of the EV charging stations, but not the actual station. Yeah, so what they're doing is they're allowing, they're just saying, look, we'll build out whatever infrastructure you need to connect to our line so that you're grid connected, but anybody can come and build whatever their 
you know, the charging system is that they want, as opposed to PG&E's, which from what I can understand the way it's this, these are described is that PG&E says, we're going to build the charging stations, we're going to own them, we're going to choose who the, you know, all of the um, vendors are who are going to provide those. And so they're much more in control of it than SoCalEd. Right. But if, if I'm putting in my own EV charger in SCE's territory, I don't have to pay for the connection charge because the ratepayer is paying for that. Yeah, I'm not sure how they're financing it, how they're okay. doing it. I would, so ima- I would imagine that, you know, they they need to allow for anybody to interconnect, just as they would for solar or anything else. Right, but they could charge me three thousand dollars for that interconnection. The reason I'm asking yeah. is because I mean, I do think if they were to rate base the interconnection charge, that would be fine. I mean, I think that there's a couple of problems with PG&E. One is they have a proven track record of screwing things up. Such so when as. you think about like smart meters. They're on their seventh generation of smart meters, and they've rate-based all six other generations. So their ability to choose the right smart meter on a reliable basis seems completely at risk here. And so their ability to choose the right charging station for the next and make sure that those charging stations can survive um, new standards that come in and new, you know, um, new features that come in is highly suspect. And the other problem that I have is that them choosing where to put the charging stations is highly suspect. They're probably just going to put them wherever they think it's easier to put them, whereas the private sector would put it at places where they think the most people would charge at. Catherine, what about uh, when they go to regulators on this? Do they have a leg to stand on when they say, hey, we've got this massive uh, EV goal that we need to meet? This is beneficial to all people in the state of California. We're going to have so many cars on the road. We have to build out this infrastructure. Will regulators be receptive to that? I mean, I think the devil's in the detail. So the the rate case is not that high of a charge for consumers. And so, you know, they could make the case that it's not that much of an investment. Um, the tricky part is, as Jigger says, where they're going to install them, um, whether people are going to throw themselves in front of the electric trucks as they did in front of the metering trucks to stop it. Um, and then, you know, how they're going to, to compete all of the charging vendors and whether it's going to be fair. I you know they have to they have to do something. The utilities are under fire for to try to change their business model and come up with new services. And so PG&E and SoCal Ed just have different ways of coming up with how they're going to do those services. I don't know. I I I could see the regulators although I can't read their minds, you know, let's see what works and you know see how far we can get on this. And there there've been models that show that there probably need to be about 100,000 public chargers in PG&E's territory by the end of the decade. And so, you know, this will only meet a quarter of that. And there's a lot left for independent third-party developers to work on rolling this out. I just think that going back to your other question, though, Stephen, I mean, look, I agree with you completely that that I've been pushing for the utilities to gain more business. I mean, I think we should be electrifying – more and more of our economy because it's in a more, I think, a more efficient way of actually running our economy and providing essential energy. And electric vehicles is a great way to do that. But I think that there's lots of other things that PG&E can do. Like, for instance, they could rate-base the batteries in all of these cars and say that at the end of seven years, they're going to take those batteries back and put them at substations to be able to get grid efficiencies out of those batteries because they've, you know, are at the end of life for car usage, but they're not at the end of life for utility grid storage usage. And they've literally had three or four or five of these meetings where everyone comes and brainstorms around what they can do on EVs. And that's the idea that comes out of all of them, but they never seem to propose it. All right, let's check in with Catherine's weak um, inventors, entrepreneurs, government officials. We're all gathered outside Washington this week for ARPA-E's 
annual innovation summit. And as many know, ARPA-E is the Department of Energy's innovation arm modeled after a similar defense research agency. The uh, event's a pretty good chance to hear about how some of the up-and-coming technologies supported by ARPA-E are going, and also to hear from leading businesses about how they're scaling up. I wasn't at the event this year, but Catherine, I know you were over there, and you want to give us a little bit of an update. I take it ARPA-E didn't announce the energy equivalent of the internet yet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. For for folks who don't know, ARPA-E was modeled after DARPA, uh, the defense program that did come up with ARPANET, our, our internet. Um, these are my people. I love hanging out with these guys. They're all just so smart and creative. And um, it's just, it's one of the best conferences out there. Unfortunately, it is in the middle of nowhere where they, where they host it, but, um, but it was still really worth going to. Um, one of the big things is that Cheryl Martin, who's been heading up that program is leaving. And there's a new director, uh, Dr. Ellen Williams, who was, who came out of BP. She was the chief scientist. And before that was a, she was a physicist and she was a professor at University of Maryland and Cheryl came out of I mean, she also has a you know PhD in chemistry um and came out of R&D but then moved into marketing and investment and you know was with Kleiner Perkins and I think you know she brought something uh very much that tied investment to innovation and so it'll be interesting to see how um Ellen Williams runs the program generally I think the program is really well structured um it's you know they ask the question if something works will it matter uh, and so they'll fund something. Uh, they'll do a lot of business development coaching, try to align partners with whatever the innovation is. But then if it doesn't work, they they ditch it. And um, I mean, I guess you could lose some things in that sense. But as part of I'm on the Venture Advisory Council for one of the labs. And, you know, it's really interesting because it makes them have to decide, should we go down this path and spend another five years with our postdocs? Or should we like look at the path that could be more successful? So I I actually think the the program is structured really well. What's up with the budget there? I know the president proposed, I think it was over $300 million for ARPA-E and his most recent budget. Uh, any talk about what kind of funding they're going to see next year? Well, just remember the president's budget is not well, the budget that it's DOA. talks about, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's DOA but, and a Republican Congress. Right. But I would just say that both sides of the aisle really like this program. Uh, they had speakers, you know, Republicans and Democrats come in and talk about the technologies. You know, it's very technology neutral, so they explore a lot of different pathways. And uh, I, I think it's been fairly popular. Um, you know, so I don't think that they will that they'll have a huge amount of difficulty getting additional funding. I think the um, there's a huge amount of success rate of success that's come out of it uh, based on the funding that they've already got. So some of the stuff that I saw coming out of RP, which I thought was interesting, was Lyndon Rive said that in California the solar industry now employs more people than all three major utilities combined. And then Alex Lasky had said that um, his sort of demand response uh, pilots, if implemented at scale could shut down 93 power plants. Hmm. Didn't see any of those. In fact, I did see that Nancy Fund of DBL Investors, who we will have on the show soon, uh, put up a slide showing that Solar City employs more people than a lot of the major tech firms there in Silicon Valley. So another good indicator. And there's going to be a report coming out on that, I think, in the next couple of weeks. And we'll be able to talk to Nancy about that when she's on the show. 
Yeah, one of the most interesting um, sessions I went to was a fireside chat with Doyle Benaby of CPS Energy and Ahmad Shatila from Sun Edison. And the question that was posed to them is, is the traditional utility dying? And they both agreed <laughs> that it was and really spoke to partnerships and, you know, working together and just listening to how the utility industry is talking now is it's pretty amazing how it's how it's changed, especially with those who are willing to change. And, and I think part of the discussion was that CPS is actually saying they're willing to change. Well, the one thing that I was ecstatic about was that Bill Gates said that we want energy to be carbon free. So it sounds like a reversal on his fossil fuel stance in emerging markets. You did it, Jigger. You reached your goal. So RPE did release its indicators that it does around this time of year. Uh, they said that 34 projects supported by the agency have attracted around $850 million in private sector follow-on funding. They've seen uh, several technologies, they say, that are actually being sold to companies and put out into the market. Uh, when you look at that $850 million number, Jigger, do you have any context for that? Is that impressive to you? Uh, can we really compare it to anything? No. I mean, look, I think that you know the amount of funding that's come out of this administration and others around pushing this has been very impressive. And and I think that, you know, whether it's $850 million or whether it's $50 million, honestly, I think this is really a shift of the mental model. I mean, that's really what we were talking about with Alex Epstein, in my opinion, in, in the first segment, which is really around, um, do, pe do people actually believe that this future state is actually better than the current state that we're in now? And I think that increasingly we're convincing people that this future state is not one of sacrifice, but one of, you know, more features and, and really is superior to the, the previous state. But I was just amazed at how many of the guests from the energy gang that RPE pulled in to speak on their panel. So I think that we are really leaders here. We had there's Michael Levi and Cheryl Martin, Linda and Rive and Nancy Fun's going to be on the show. So, you know, they're borrowing. We're a bellwether. All right, folks, time to wrap it up tell you something you do not know. Catherine Hamilton, what do you have this week? Okay, you guys are going to love it because I'm always so positive. Every time a new Congress starts, no matter what they look like, I say, oh, you know, I think we're going to get something done. Well, the honeymoon's over. Um, the House and Senate have uh, stopped co-governing. They don't know how they're going to fund the Department of Homeland Security. So the House passed a bill that blocks and repeals a lot of what uh, the president did on immigration. Um, and the Senate can't decide what they're going to do. And in a press conference... John Beaner even said um, there is a gift shop in the basement of the house that you can buy the book, How a Bill Becomes a Law, and I think the Senate needs to read it. <laughs> well, and I should remind people that uh, if DHS isn't funded, those employees still have to go to work without pay. Yeah, that's that's the whole sad thing about this. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So I was uh, researching you know, stuff, and I found that Basically, this week is the 50th anniversary of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson's warning on carbon dioxide. He uh, addressed Congress and said that air pollution is no longer confined to isolated places and that, uh, you know, that a steady increase in carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels may be altering the composition of the atmosphere. What do you know? Wow. 50th anniversary. And uh, – and, uh, you know, like a lot of the coal plants that we're shutting down right now are ones that were built after he said that. Well, I've got a quick announcement. Um, I love you guys dearly. 
And uh, turns out I'm going to have another co-host once every two weeks. Shale Khan, our senior VP, and I are going to be rolling out a new podcast starting in about April. Uh, every two weeks, it's going to be a debate format. It's called Versus. It'll be sort of um, a presidential-style debate where we'll get to ask different questions of the contestants, and they'll get to ask questions of themselves. And we just want to tackle some of the big issues in energy that we discuss a lot on this podcast, but do it in a much more uh, constrained way, such as, are advanced biofuels doomed? Should should we hack the climate? Can we get to 100% renewable energy? Some of these big, hairy questions that people are dealing with in energy. So we're going to be rolling that out in a month or two. And uh, people can look out for that one as well. It's called Versus. But, of course, the Energy Gang is um, always top priority, and we'll be doing this podcast as always. I love it. I love it. The Green Tech Media Podcast family is growing. Yeah, so that eventually people will have a different one every single day that they can listen to. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we get people asking us to do this twice, three times a week, and none of us can handle that with our schedules. I mean, once a week is a lot sometimes, depending on how people are traveling. So it'll be a nice way to fill in the gap sometimes. That's going to do it for us, folks. You can find all our back episodes on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher Radio, and, uh, of course, on our website, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. While you're there, sign up for our newsletters, check out some upcoming conferences, Our next one will be at our annual Solar Summit in April in Phoenix, Arizona. And next week, I'm going to be at O-Power's User Conference with a very busy schedule, so no podcast until the week of the 23rd for us. So you can listen to this one over again or go back to our 75-76 back episodes. We've got a ton of content there for you. Next week, we've got Bob Inglis, the former Republican congressman, will uh, be on the show to talk about the carbon tax, his carbon tax proposal and how to get more conservatives talking about climate. Until then, Catherine, have a wonderful week off. Thanks, you too. I'll miss you guys. Jigger, safe travels wherever you are. Thanks. I'm heading back to New York City into the frigid cold air this weekend. (laughs) Well, I'll be in Miami next week, so I'll be thinking of you. Mm. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 